Thank you for listening to We Have Ways of Making You Talk. Sign up to our Patreon to receive bonus content, live streams, and our weekly newsletter with money off books and museum visits as well, plus early access to all live show tickets. That's patreon.com slash we have ways. Hola. Hello, this call is being translated. Abuela, listen to what my phone can do. Abuela, escucha lo que mi teléfono puede hacer. Wow, ahora dime sobre tu novia nueva. Wow, now tell me about this new girlfriend. Huh? Tú sabes lo que dije. You know what I said. Language is no longer a barrier, thanks to Live Translate with Galaxy AI on Samsung Galaxy S24 Ultra. Learn more at Samsung.com. Samsung account login required. Calls must be made using the native Samsung dialer. Life is a highway, and on it there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one McCrispie, so go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem of a detour. Life is full of awesome what ifs, and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out of pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. Acton, acton. Welcome to We Have Ways of Making You Talk USA. And Jim, we're fully loaded today, yeah. aren't we? So I'm going to bypass you and hand over to John because John, John um, is offering us a special guest today. So hello, John. How are you? Last time we spoke, by the way, Jim was yet to jump out of an aircraft and he's since successfully done that. I've got to say, I absolutely loved it. I thought it was amazing. It was absolutely amazing. I, I, I do remember, though, hurtling out at 125 miles an hour and thinking, I think I've got about 25 seconds of this. And and after 25 seconds, thinking, 25 seconds must have gone, and I still haven't had the kind of, you know, the jolt. But then, mercifully, it did happen. Yeah. And nearly ripped my nuts it's, off, I've got to say, in the process. But Yes, well, that's the... Yes, there you go. <laughs> but there apart from are. that, it was great. I was going to say, how is the feeling of relief when the canopy opened? But if it nearly ripped your nuts off, there we are. Um, and the relief, of course, is that it doesn't actually rip your nuts off. But we've digressed <laughs> as entirely in character, we've digressed. So, John, who, who are we talking to today? Yeah, we got a special guest today. We got my old buddy Kevin Hemel, who is really, I mean, I'm being serious here. He is the world's leading expert on patent now. Right. Um, he's written several books on patent, including most recently, he's in the middle of a, a three-volume biography of patent, a World War II biography yeah. called Patent's War, and then volumes one, two, and three. Um, and the most recent one is volume two that covered 1944, which, of course, is fascinating, and he's working on volume three. Kevin has, uh, has done... Uh, a battlefield tour uh, based on called In the Footsteps of Patton, and, and he's just sort of conversing on all things Patton in addition to being actually a good guy. So welcome, Kevin. Absolutely welcome. And I've got to say, I, I'm delighted you're here, Kevin, because I've read both these two volumes that you've produced so far, and I thought they were absolutely stunning and, and, and yeah. genuinely new material on the, on, the, on the great man. Yes. It's taken me about, oh boy, about 20 years to gather all this. But what I decided to do was, you know, so many people have written about Patton and all they rely on are his letters and diaries. And I thought if I could go that extra step and gather all those references to Patton I've seen in soldiers' memoirs, I could add another layer. And then so to my surprise, while working on volume two, uh, the Library of Congress went back and did a word-for-word translation of his original diaries. And what I discovered was his wife embellished his in diary his diaries incredibly. No. And it really yep. has changed the narrative of that we have of George Patton. 
yeah, it's amazing, isn't it? And I've seen I've seen those original diaries in the Library of Congress, and his absolutely appalling handwriting. It takes a little little bit of getting used to, doesn't it? You know, when I first w- uh, found the, the 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 collection years, you know, decades ago. I was actually doing my own translations of his letters to his wife before I realized that she had typed those up too. And the struggle, I would take a red pen and write above his chicken scratch what I thought he was really writing. And it was just so laborious. I was so grateful for the typed up letters. Which is why you go toward that. It's just the easiest way. But it, I mean, that is what is quite exciting about um, you know your new books. It's not just a matter of his wife doctoring the diaries, but also Hobart Gay and Paul Harkins, two guys who had a real future in the army, Gay in terms of a commander in Korea, and uh, Harkins obviously a commander in Vietnam. So I think that's kind of an interesting angle Mm. too. These are two officers who were not necessarily living up to the code of leadership. Yeah, and they're not just... um they're not just sort of enhancing what Patton says sometimes or defending their old general. I feel like they're settling scores. When they don't like somebody, they add negative sentences, particularly General Lee, uh, the head of ComZ, uh, Eisenhower's supply and logistics officer. There's a lot of bad-mouthing of him that people have taken for Patton's voice. And then to read the actual diary, and all he says was, met with Lee today, and that's it. You know, in the, in the typed up versions, there's a whole paragraph of what a terrible person he is in an SOB, and Patton never said it. It's amazing, isn't it? Absolutely amazing. I mean, I mean, Lee was a bit of an SOB, though, wasn't he, to be fair? So, you know, even if not attributable to Patton, it's probably a fair sentiment. <laughs> well, they weren't the only ones who didn't like him, that's for sure. Yeah. yeah. A lot of people aren't like to fire him. And, and if I could just add, uh, working on volume three, I've come up with another dimension on this whole uh, enhanced diary that his wife put together. I came across an entry uh, in late January where he talks about Al Stiller, a guy he had fought with in World War I and was on his staff all throughout World War II. And there's a whole paragraph where he talks about what an idiot he is and that he can't do anything Patton asked him to do. Well, that paragraph was completely wiped out of the uh, typed up diaries. So not only are they protecting Patton, they're making conscious decisions not to badmouth people that they like. God, amazing. And, and Kevin, I mean, give us an over, you know, for, we, we do talk about Patton a lot on this on this podcast, but we've never done a podcast just on Patton, I don't think. You know, from all the work you've done on him the last 20 years, what's your assessment of his character? Because there's the George C. Scott Patton, isn't there? There's the kind of, there's the pattern of myth. And there's the pattern of reality, and the, and the three are not the same. I mean, you know, one of the things that's always struck me is that he's much, he's riven by more doubt, personal doubt, than, than ever comes across in the kind of public persona. You know, he gets really nervous before battles, he worries about stuff, he's endlessly kind of picking over things. You know, his diary is absolutely his psychiatrist shrink to himself, isn't it? I mean, you know, I mean, if, if he could go and talk to a doctor every night, he would. And and the, the original ones, and as you show in your in your the first two volumes, he's very honest, isn't he, in his diaries, I think? Yes, yes. So to answer the first part of your question about his personality, uh, yes, uh, very insecure, which I think is very human. You know, he's you're, you're leading men in combat. If you fail... You, you know, the, the, the results are catastrophic, not like any other job. Um, but yep. to, to focus on the personality, 
And the thing that really came across, because people always say, like, are, are, you must be, you love Patton. You're his biggest fan. And I say, no. You know, when I was a kid and I saw the movie, yeah, I loved him. But then when I, you know, really did the research and especially the, his actual diaries and to see the anti-Semitism and the racism is heartbreaking because here's a person that's held up as a paragon of leadership, yet he is limited by his his own prejudices and that, that he gives into. And so that's very disappointing to know that, you know, he did think that blacks and anybody who was not a white Christian was inferior, uh, you know, was an inferior race, was inferior religion. And so that's, you know, kind of disheartening to learn, but very real. And then as, as we step up, you know, about his leadership, yes, very insecure. He's taking risks and he knows that if the risks fail, that the consequences will be on him. So the positive is that he's willing to take risks in a high pressure uh, scene, yet like anybody else, he knows he's taking incredible risks and the failures will be catastrophic. But I do think he was a battlefield genius. He studied it since he was a child. Um, even in, in adulthood, I, I, you know, I have to look up these books that he's talking about, about things I don't know anything about. In fact, in early February, he writes his wife that he just got his hands on the biography of the Lord of Saxony or something like that. Like, I don't even heard of this person and had to go look him up. I mean, he is researching on such a subatomic level, military history and strategy and applying it to the battlefield where... So many American generals are locked in by their the infantry school back in the United States where he is thinking, you know, about a fluid battlefield, using tanks, using ships to go around uh, landlocked armies, you know, just applying any solution he can to succeed on the battlefield. And it's very impressive to write about and to read about. Well, he's a classic example of maneuver war. I mean, he, he is, to some extent, the, the sort of blueprint that the U.S. Army is supposed to be, especially about 1944, you know, the Volume 2, um, you know, which you've really covered the breakout from Normandy and the dash across France and, and all that. I mean, this is an incredibly automated military organization uh, with close air support, too. So I think in some ways he's mastered that as well or better than anybody. Yeah, yeah, he does. And he and he masters it very quickly because when he's in Tunisia and he's looking after uh, and he's in command of two corps down in the kind of sort of Gafsa El Getar kind of region, he doesn't get air power at all. And he actually, before he takes command, he goes to a conference that Montgomery organizes in Tripoli where, where um, Mary Cunningham, who's by March 1943, is the North African Tactical Air Force commander. And Mary Cunningham gives this lecture about it. And Patton's a bit kind of poo-pooey about the whole thing. He's poo-pooey about Montgomery, poo-pooey about the whole conference. And he has this big spat with Mary Cunningham. And it's about how you use air power. And, and, and Cunningham is basically saying, I'm not going to give you umbrellas you know, taxi rank, um, fighter planes hovering over the battlefield, that's not going to happen and you need to get with it. And and Patton is going, this guy's absolutely hopeless. I asked for air, I, you know, I, I asked for air support and it's not coming. They have this huge spat. Alexander, the army group commander, tells off Cunningham and says, go and apologise. They do and they kind of have tea and cake and make up. And, and from then on, we, you know, from that point onward, Patton gets it. So that by the time he's in Sicily, he's totally got air power and he's totally sussed out his. And he's he's kind of like a light motif for the whole American army that once you take a knock, you learn from it, and you learn from it quick and apply it. And, and he, he's never so arrogant that he's not prepared to, to listen and, and learn. And I think that's the kind of paradox of him because you, he comes across as this incredibly bombastic, I'm right, everyone else is wrong kind of figure. 
But actually, that is just a front, isn't it, Kevin? I mean, you know, that, that he's not like that. That's the point. But this is the question, isn't it? Is his surface style is a style that he's self-created, isn't it? I mean, and, and inevitably, we've already used the M word. Montgomery has already come up. <laughs> he's a man who I think also has a surface style and is a far more agile mind than he's given credit for because of that surface style. He's also a man who learns on the job. He's also a man who has his way of thinking about things and getting the British army to work to its best, uh, you know, to find its best, truest note and play that note as best he can. And I think it's hard not to be beguiled by these surfaces, isn't it? That, to not be sort of fooled by them in a way, because people have been for decades, for, for the best part of a century, they've been fooled by Patton's surface display. Would you say that's fair, Kevin? Yeah, because a leader really has to put on that mask. And, you know, when everything's falling apart, you got to say, hey, this is part of the plan. I know what I'm doing. Um, to, to talk yep. about North Africa, yes, he, you know, has that clash with Cunningham. But after that, him and Cunningham get along very well. You know, I think they both exactly. have a mutual respect for each other. And that's the real key uh, to me in uh, combat leadership is your ability to get along with your the people on your same level, the people below you. Because as soon as there's resentment, there's a lack of communications and things are going to break apart. So Patton was never afraid to confront somebody angrily, you know. And it's, it's sort of like it told you who he was. And then once that was over, you got along very well. The same thing happened with the American naval commander Hewitt when he first met Patton in Norfolk before they went across the Atlantic. Patton, you know, is like, you guys are effed up. You don't know what the hell you're doing. And he's, you know, repelled by this. And he goes to Marshall, says, you got to give me a different land commander. This guy, Patton's insane. And Marshall's like, no, no, no. He's really well trained. He's got a hard shell. Once you crack through, he's going to be fine. And they get along so well, you know, that Patton and them, and him work together in Sicily. And so that's the sort of a recurring thing is Patton's hard shell. And once you kind of bounce back from it, he'll get, you know, he'll respect you as long as you come back at him. Um, now getting back to sort of his mastery of the battlefield, you know, the one thing, and, and James, I think you point this out in your Sicily book, the one thing Patton doesn't have that a lot of the British commanders have is just combat experience. You know, he has two weeks on the battlefield in World War One, a three-day fight in Morocco. So when he comes to Tunisia, he has his ideas of armor breakthrough and everything, but he's just up against a really experienced enemy. The American soldiers aren't used to this. So it doesn't really happen. He gets to Sicily, tries it again with second armored, but the terrain in Sicily is so mountainous, it's not favorable for armor either. It's really the infantry that are making the success on the ground, even though Patton's claiming it's armor success. And that causes a lot of resentment, both in third ID and first ID. Um, but it's finally when he gets to France and he's got the tank divisions he wants and the infantry that he performs exactly what he's been training for all his life and basically breaks open a hole, you know, breaks through a hole that was open for him, but exploits it where everybody else is worried about flanks and moving too fast. Patton says, no, it's the opposite. We're going to move faster and we can use aircraft to protect our flanks because it's never been done before. And he goes, yeah, I know. So what? And he's not afraid to take that chance. Well, no, he is afraid, but he still takes it because he constantly writes in his diary. Like, I could really screw this up, but I've got to believe that this is happening. And I shamed, I'm ashamed of myself for questioning it. I should know that we've got the troops for this. And people always credit Patton, I think, with the Battle of the Bulge. Like, that's his greatest moment. I really think it's the breakout from France. 
you know, the breakout from Normandy. Nobody else, I don't think, no other American commander could have comprehended just flying underneath the German army the way he did and taking advantage of a chaotic situation the way he did. And I think that's one of his greatest victories. Yeah, I mean, it's the exact convergence of a commander who is wired this way and an army that is built this way, and it's exact moment. Now, we've had uh, the M-word, Montgomery. We've got to explore that, especially in this forum. I think it's so interesting because these two, it seems to me these two guys, Montgomery and Patton, are sort of victims of their own pathologies. Uh, yeah. Monty sort of just that, that burr in the saddle. He just cannot help himself from being just an, an ass sometimes, you know. Um, Patton all of his racism and, and bombast and all this garbage. Um, and yet they become, and I, you know, I tell you guys, I see this in my classroom, uh, probably because students have seen the movie Patton, and I see this, that they become somehow symbols of their countries. Um, you know, Patton, the innovative American, doing things right, and then the Monty, the, the sort of stuffy Brit. And yeah. so, you know, we have this surviving to this day, don't we? I mean, but it's it's sheer crap on some levels, isn't it? So why does that notion survive it's utter chuff it's it's <laughs> it an, is it's it really is so why why does this notion survive into the 2020s do you think it's because they're atypical of the time aren't they you know and they they stand out because they know that they're playing the media card they're playing an image montgomery just has this sort of unbelievable crassness i mean i, I you know it, it's so interesting reading chet hansen's diaries which you know obviously at, at carlisle in the uh, army <laughs> um heritage education center there and they're fascinated because you know he's beetling around with bradley in normandy but also in um in in, in sicily and recording very faithfully the sort of conversations he comes up against and you know and, and chet hansen seems a perfectly reasonable person he doesn't seem like he's got particular axe to grind or anything there's lots of people he gets you know he gets on pretty much with everybody but there are moments where he's recounting conversations with montgomery that montgomery has had with bradley or with other american generals and you know you're just cringing with with embarrassment about just how bloody rude monty could be but i think a lot of historians i've said this before i think they conflate their dislike of monty's characteristics or certain aspects of monty's characteristics with his ability as a commander and i think it clouds the a lot of historical judgment on him when actually you just have to forget what his personality is like. I mean, personality is important, obviously, and important. It's important to get on with your fellows and your peers and your superiors and all the rest of it. it. It's it's not it's not helpful to wind people up. But you also have to look past that because a lot of generals have massive egos and and have have issues and are tricky and you know have massive chips on their shoulder and all sorts of stuff. And you have to kind of get beyond that and you have to kind of look at what they are doing right. The one thing I would say that where they have they really have have a lot in common is operationally. I think Montgomery is superb, but I also think Patton is superb operationally. And Kevin, you were talking about that breakout from Brittany. I would and saying about the restrictions in Sicily. One of the key moments I think in forging Patton's career is the push west when he gets the road. I can't remember which one it is, Highway One Two Seven or whatever it is, gets taken away from him in in Sicily and handed over to Eighth Army, which in my humble opinion, was probably the right right call, but it's not handled very well. And he then goes and appeals to Alexandra, says, OK, well, can I kind of sweep westwards and clear up and get Palermo? And Alex goes, be my guest. And he does. And that operation, it's like three and a half days, if I remember right. It's really very quick. It goes, I think it starts on the 17th and the, something like that of, of July, and they're in Palermo by the 21st or 22nd, you know, give or, give or take a day. 
And it is an absolute masterpiece of the operational art. And if you don't get your operational art right, then you can't do warfare of manoeuvre. You know, you, you can't do the tactical genius bit. And, you know, the one flows from the other. And I always think that bit has been completely underrated, under kind of appreciated, that episode in the Sicilian campaign. OK, so they're mopping up kind of Sicilian troops who have, you know, from a morale point of view, have had it, all the rest of it. Forget all that. That's not the point. It's how you move a sizable force over a country with poor infrastructure, difficult terrain, in spectacular high summer heat, and you do it with speed and organisation and maintain your effort at the front at all times. That is unbelievably difficult to pull off. And the only way you can do that is by leading absolutely from the top and having a really good staff and getting your staff work and your operational level absolutely tip-top. And when you consider at the start of the Sicilian campaign actually how little combat experience at high command level Patton has, it's absolutely phenomenal. Yeah, I completely agree with you. And I do have to admit, I would give Montgomery some credit for that because before they even went ashore in Sicily during one of their operational uh, meetings, Montgomery told Patton, listen, when we get ashore, I'm ignoring uh, Alexander. I'm doing whatever I want. I'm, once I get on board, I'm, I'm going. And Patton, when he gets ashore, he's following everything Alexander tells him. And when he gets that road taken away, he goes, you know what? If, if Montgomery can do that, then I'm going to be like Montgomery. I'm going to do what I want to do. I'm not going to listen to Alexander, just like he told me he's not doing. And that's what leads to that drive on Palermo. And, and from that moment on, he owns that campaign. He, not to say that he wasn't up front from the very beginning, because he was, but he is the force driving those divisions north, uh, coordinating it on the road, in the dust, every day, making sure it happens. Uh, fortunately, he has two very good infantry division commanders underneath him, with Middleton with the 45th, and um, John, who's the commander of the 3rd Infantry? Well, he's Kevin, I, I was going to point this out, who does this whole job for him is Truscott in the 3rd Division, specifically the 7th Infantry, that really pulls off that whole Palermo maneuver, and then eventually the Messina maneuver, once you get to the tail end of the campaign. Um, and, and so I think that's profoundly ironic. Here's a guy who's very much part of that cavalry and armor school. Hey, we've got a new form of warfare and all that. Um, and then he has to realize it's actually the infantry that's going to be doing a lot of what he envisioned tanks were going to be doing, too. But no, John, he doesn't yeah. realize that because he refuses to let the infantry go into Palermo and says, no, the tanks are going to go in and really earns the ire of every soldier in the 3rd Infantry Division by doing that. Well... But, but in spite of that, the, the 7th Infantry got there, and so then he's angry about that, and they say, what do you want to give it back? You know, all this kind of stuff. And if I could add, we were talking about the Montgomery Patton, you know, the, the thing that drives me nuts uh, uh, is the movie A Bridge Too Far at the very beginning. Oh, God! I'm glad you said it. It's the documentary. Do they go with Montgomery's plan or Patton's? That wasn't the choice. It was between Montgomery and Bradley's plan because you're talking two army group commanders. Patton is just an army commander. It's a false equivalency comparing those two at that point in the war. Sicily, yes, they're both army commanders. But in Europe, Montgomery's an army group commander. So is Omar Bradley. Patton is just an army commander. Can I just take a point you made, made Kevin, about Montgomery telling, telling Patton that he doesn't listen to, to orders at all? That is just absolute 
rubbish. <laughs> I mean, I mean, Mark Montgomery <laughs> absolutely said that, and it's a really valid point. And and, and you're uh, so I'm not criticising your point at all. That's absolutely true. Montgomery absolutely listens to what Alexander tells him to do. What what he was saying to Patton is, oh, I just do what I want because. That's his ego. That's his kind of, I'm the daddy man. I'm the kind of the, the guy in charge around here. No one tells me what to do. I run rings around my superiors. That isn't the case. Uh, and there's lots and lots of examples where Alexander is advising Montgomery and urging him to do stuff. And Montgomery says, oh, it was all my idea. And actually it's not, it's Alexander's. Whether it be, whether it be the there will be no reverses when they first get out to um, uh, Egypt in August 1942, whether it be the change of plan for supercharge, which is absolutely Alexander's idea and not Montgomery's, but he, he suggested in such a way that Montgomery feels it's his idea. And, you know, that's very much Alexander's style of command and whatever. And even when, when Pat does do the sweep west he goes and checks of alexander first he says i want to do this the british style is to have a much more flexible a flexible way of doing things so you have your orders you have your objectives you've got to go and do it but obviously if you're on the ground and the situation changes then you're trusted to make the right call if it needs to change as long as the overall aim is the same that's fine and that's always been very much alexander's command style it's very interesting when alexander is um, but Alexander doesn't have a, a blanket style of dealing with different commanders. So when he's when when Patton is with in Tukor in southern Tunisia, he changes the, his Alexander changes his orders to Patton something like six times, and each one of those times is, is entirely justified. And what he's trying to do is he's trying to protect Patton. He completely gets his his potential. Completely understands that that here is a guy of a touch of genius. But he doesn't want him kind of going off like a bull in a china shop. So he has to kind of prove himself to, to Alex first before Alex can give him a little bit more leash all the time. Then gives a bit more, gives him a bit more. And then eventually says, OK, fine, crack on. And, and that seems to me like a good way of dealing with him and part of Patton's battlefield education. I think the point I'm trying to make about the sweep to Palermo is that once Patton is given that free reign to just go and clear the western half of Sicily, and let's face it, it's actually three-fifths of Sicily, uh, you know, in terms of landmass. The logistical challenges of that are absolutely enormous. And whether that, you know, how much of that is is, is Trusker and Middleton and how much of that is, is, is Patton's overall kind of input, you know, you can argue the toss over that, but, but the stamp of Patton is there all the way. You know, he's, he's a very visible commander. He's at the front all the time. It's him that's giving the guidance. You know, he's getting his, his very competent subordinates to, to enact his vision. But the lessons he learns, the lessons Seventh Army learns, the lessons those individual corps and, and divisions, that divisions learn, the 3rd and the 45th particularly, but also um, I seem to remember the Rangers are involved, aren't they, as well? Rangers, 1st uh, Infantry, 2nd Armoured. Right. Yeah. What those divisions learn in that process is just invaluable to their future performance and patents the army commander so quite right he should get the kudos i think you know when things go well as an army commander you take you, you take the kudos you, and when things don't go so well you take it on the chin and take the responsibility and i think he's you know he it is only right that he should get his full whack of credit for that and you see this this operational skill time and time again in northwest europe and you bring this out so well in your books kevin but Patton is absolute master of of the battlefield on that level, on those two levels, the tactical and the operational. Yeah, um, two things. One on Sicily, uh, it's not really played up, I guess, in the movie, but by taking uh, Agrigento, that was a port. He had been relying on the British ports for supplying his Seventh Army. Once he takes that, he really controls his logistics. 
which is key. Yeah, yeah. And then the second thing about Sicily, and I'll jump back to North Africa, you know, everybody, I, I guess I don't want to say everybody, but the, the, the general impression we have is that he's driving like a madman across northern Sicily to get to Messina. It was no different to get to Palermo. You know, he's just as invested. He's just as obsessed. He's just as driving. Um, I think because of the two slapping incidents, we tend to play up his behavior wow. on the way to Messina. But it was just as you, at times irrational, you know, on the way up to Palermo. Now, jumping back to North Africa and sort of um, British leadership, American leadership, talking about Alexander, you know, Patton complains. He goes, oh, the British method of leadership is not to tell you what to do, but tell you what to do and how to do it. And that's terrible to me. I mean, it's almost laughable because Patton does the exact same thing later in the war when he has green <laughs> commanders. He's telling them how to go about their operations, not just what to do. And it's just exactly what you said. I've got good people underneath me without experience. So I need to explain a little bit more how to go about it to make sure they know what they're doing. And so, you know, I think a lot of people reading earlier Patton books are like, oh, that British way is different from the American. It's nothing to do with it. It's whether you have no. experienced commanders that you trust or not. Yeah, and this is this is Alexander's big thing is is that you should always and th and this is why he supports Clark when Clark's sort of going oh I'm not sure about Lucas and you know maybe we should get Lucas and and, and um, when he gets rid of um, what's his name Corps Commander Dolly Dolly yeah and and and, and Alexander says to him says well you know it's really important that you trust your your subordinate if you if you if you lost a trust then he has to go whether it's justified or not it's, you know <laughs> the stakes are too high to be kind of quibbling over kind of hurting someone's feelings i mean and 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 that's that's very much Alexander's command style is that you have to have a very clear chain of command and as an army group commander you're an enabler you're a facilitator you're a kind of smoother of ruffles and you're kind of you know everything okay help me to help you um you know what do you need how can i kind of you know improve the supply chains where do you need me to argue with ike or with the chiefs of staff you know that's kind of his role in relationship with with core commanders army commanders whatever and that trust, trust in your subordinates is absolutely second to none. And obviously Patton in Sicily can do that because he's got class A people like Bradley, like like Middleton, like Truscott, you know, all who are incredibly competent and like Patton learn incredibly quickly. So so he's lucky. But it, and Terry Allen, yeah. I mean, you know, and it's it's interesting, isn't it? Because the whole Terry Allen saga is a different thing. So Terry Allen, for those who don't know, is is a very kind of inspirational, kind of seat of your pants kind of guy. He he's a sort of antithesis of, of Patton in some ways because he just thinks it's all about morale and it's about having a kind of a bonding experience within your, your division rather than the kind of spick and span discipline of, of traditional soldiering, which is something that Patton very much adheres to. You know, he likes people to wear a tie and look smart and all the rest of it. And Terry Allen doesn't care a damn about that. But actually, despite this, they get on fine, don't they? I mean, they, they, they get on okay. And actually, it's Bradley who suggests to, to Patton that he should, you know, Alan should go. So after, so Alan is very popular with his men in the 1st Army, 1st uh, Infantry Division. He does pretty well in Tunisia, does pretty well in Sicily, but is slightly kind of hits a brick wall at Troina, which is this highest mountain battle that they have in Sicily. And it takes him longer than expected and all the rest of it. And there is this feeling that Terry Allen, Bradley thinks that Terry Allen is a bit worn out, that he's a bit exhausted and they need a change. And actually, the reasons for getting rid of him at that time are perhaps a bit harsh, but kind of, you know, not unreasonable. And so he goes and it causes a big controversy, but it's always seen as Patton who's got rid of him rather than Bradley. Well, it's, uh, well, you know, Bradley wrote in his memoir that he was the reason they got rid of Terry Allen 
And in my research, it was just the opposite. It really was. Oh, it really was Patton. It was Patton. And Terry Allen knew about it before he even landed in Sicily. And the main reason was because at the Kazarine Pass, we had taken such a hard hit that, you know, we realized there's a problem with the U.S. Army from the ground roots. We need to start retraining our soldiers on how to fight. And they started calling back commanders from North Africa to go back to the United States and train troops. And I came across, I was going through the Army Green Books, the operational history. Um, I went through the notes at the National Archives and two generals, and I write about it in volume one, said, hey, you know, Terry Allen wasn't fired. They sent him home and the plan was to bring him back as a corps commander once he trained, you know, certain elements of the U.S. Army. I had two guys saying that. Um, and it's even in Eisenhower's letters and stuff that he didn't want to let Terry Allen go. He was very valuable, but he was needed to train more troops back in the States. And I think after Patton was dead, that Bradley writes that memoir and makes that claim. And that's the only time I've ever seen that Bradley took credit for it. It's really not in the Chet Hansen diaries or anywhere else. It's really Bradley's memoir that he says, I did this. And, you know, and there's, and if you go through Patton's letters in, or diaries in detail, he says, you know, we're going to have to rotate him home. It's going to be without prejudice. I want to reinforce that. This is not a, a firing by any sort. Brigadier General Roosevelt goes to Patton's headquarters at one point and says, please don't send us back you know, in a couple of weeks. And he's like, I can't. So it was all known way ahead of time. It wasn't the shocking revelation that uh, a lot of historians have made it out to be. But to the troops, it was shocking yep. and it was jarring. And the troops of the 1st Infantry Division definitely blame Patton. A little anecdote about that. The, uh, the Of course, Clarence Hubner took over for, for Allen. And Rick Bigger and one soldier hardly knew anything about this guy. He seemed to be this spit and polished martinet or whatever. And so, when the uh, when the division was going to be getting aboard ships, um, they thought to sail home, but actually they're going to England to prepare for D-Day. Uh, Patton wanted to say goodbye, and he's going to get in his uh, his little boat and, and zip by, and and so Hubner had to order everybody to, to line up at the rails and basically wave goodbye to Patton and cheer and all this and. What happens instead? And, of course, Stanhope Mason, who was the chief of staff of the division, said, I don't think you should do that, sir. <laughs> He's not very popular with the guys. And uh, Hubner's like, ah, orders are orders. And uh, so Patton zips by, and it's just stony, dead silence, the most awkward thing you could possibly imagine. Um, because the soldiers, for well or ill, blamed Patton for getting rid of Alec, because Patton becomes the sort of face of everything, I guess you could say. And the example, I think, the best example of, uh, of Alan's excellence is that he gets a division, the 104th, uh, and comes back and from late October 1944 to the end of the war. That's really one of the better divisions in the U.S. Army. And I think, personally, that if, um, if Alan's colleagues would have adopted his ideas about combat, uh, the U.S. Army would have been a much better night-fighting organization. We basically seed the night, in a, in a generality, to our enemies all the way through the Vietnam War. Allen had the exact opposite viewpoint, and I think there was a lot to learn from him. So I think Kevin's insight into what really happens there is extremely important on a lot of levels. I'll tell you what we're going to do. We're going to take a very quick break, because uh, what we've done in typical style is we've gone... 37 minutes in or 35 minutes into a topic without uh, giving people a chance to um, catch up with us. Um, we'll see you in a second, everybody. Hola. Hello. This call is being translated. Abuela, listen to what my phone can do. 
Abuela, escucha lo que mi teléfono puede hacer. Wow. Ahora dime sobre tu novia nueva. Wow. Now tell me about this new girlfriend. Huh? Tú sabes lo que dije. You know what I said. Language is no longer a barrier thanks to Live Translate with Galaxy AI on Samsung Galaxy S24 Ultra. Learn more at samsung.com. Samsung account login required. Calls must be made using the native Samsung dialer. Life is a highway, and on it there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one McCrispy, so go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem of a detour. Atlassian software like Jira, Confluence, and Trello help power global collaboration for all teams, so they can accomplish everything that's impossible alone. Because individually we're great, but together we're so much better. That's why millions of teams around the world, including 75% of the Fortune 500, trust Atlassian software. Learn how to unleash the potential of your team at Atlassian.com. That's A-T-L-A-S-S-I-A-N.com. Atlassian. Welcome back to Weird Ways to Make You Talk. Um, it's a pattern fest. Um, now, Kevin, I wrote about pattern last year in, in my roundup of uh, different Allied command, British and American commanders. And I, I was fascinated by the slapping incident, which, which we've touched on uh, momentarily. And you make the excellent point in your book that he'd been going around slapping, shaking, kicking soldiers up the arse um, the entire time. And that the slapping incidents are not unique that they're part of a continuum and so in a peculiar way the army then having to deal with them or eisenhower then having to deal with that is the anomaly rather than the norm isn't it is that this is the guy's style so why is it you think that that finally it catches up with him that no one's done anything about it before what what is it that brings this question to a head so from the moment he steps ashore on november 8 1942 Uh, Patton is accosting soldiers, uh, famously kicking one in the butt uh, the next morning. Uh, it gets to a point where it's a point of pride with a lot of soldiers to have been struck by Patton. You know, they almost brag about it. <laughs> And he's getting things done. He's accomplishing on the battlefield or he's about to. So let's just hold tight. Yeah. Let's see if he wins, you know, that kind of thing. And the But the, the two slapping incidents, because there were two, there wasn't just one as yeah. portrayed in the movie, yeah. Um, that is so beyond the line. Like, and people said, if he had done that at an aid station, that'd have been okay. But the fact that this was a rear evacuation hospital, you know, that the doctors are present, uh, the guy is clearly suffering from post-traumatic stress, which Patton says he doesn't believe in, but when you read deeper into him, he experienced it in World War I, he saw it happen. Um, and I think he suffered from it himself after World War I. But it's so over the top, you know, the reporters complain. Now you've gotten outside the perimeter of the military to civilian reporters, and it takes almost a Herculean effort between Eisenhower and Bradley to like, okay, guys, let's just, you got to help us out here. We, we got future battles to win. We need him. And it's not until that story. So they clamp down on it perfectly. The problem is they're sending wounded back to the United States who have got all this in their head that have not been told to keep quiet. And when the word breaks over in the United States, That's when it really blows up. And one of the people furious about this is a senator named Harry Truman, who had been in the National Guard, fought in World War I, and sees all these regular army guys as being in this big fraternity where they're going to cover each other's backs. And this is a perfect example of it. 
And that causes the huge explosion. Uh, subsequently, uh, one of the other things I analyzed in my book is I do place some of the blame at Eisenhower's feet because if he had heard that Patton was striking soldiers, I mean, he knew about it, you know, that this was part of Patton's persona. If he had locked down on Patton earlier, if he had gone to visit him more often and been a witness to Patton's poorest of behaviors, he as a military leader, as Patton's superior, he was bound to try to correct it. You know, I've had people bounce back like, oh, Patton was his own man. He wouldn't listen to Eisenhower. Patton followed orders. You know, Patton didn't want to get sent home. And if Eisenhower said, listen, if I hear about you striking anybody in the future, I'm sending you home. I think that would have done the best to probably prevent it. I can't guarantee that it would have because Patton was very much uh, controlled by his emotions at times. And remember, we and you guys have talked about this extent, at extent before, leaders are exhausted you know, they're, they're taking great risks. They're doing a little bit of sleep. They're going to blow at, at times if they don't get away from the battlefield to get some rest, get some food. And Patton, that is a consequence of his upfront leadership is that uh, sort of emotional edge that he's always balanced on. Yeah, 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 yeah. And after all, because in the end, it's a fudge, isn't it? That yes, he loses his job. But he's then immediately uh, hired again. You know, it's it's not as though it's 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 not like I, I can never make up my mind as to how symbolic removing him really is. You know, a denying him of his command. I, I, I just can't. I, I can never quite make my mind up because obviously there's a feeling. We started this podcast with discussion of his operational brilliance. You know, is it the is it the Ardennes or is it or is it Brittany? You know, where he's where he demonstrates his absolute mastery of, of American operational art. So they know that. And in the end, Eisenhower also has big decisions to make with big responsibilities. So he wants, just as we've discussed, he wants the people below him, he can trust them. And and Patton's one of those people. I can never make up my mind how symbolic, how serious Eisenhower is really about, you know, laying him off for a bit. And then, you, do, do you know what I mean? I can, I can never I quite... Eisenhower never really thought of... I think he was like, okay, your battle is over. We're going to continue in Italy. We got commanders. We got to get seasoned, you know, Mark Clark and everybody. Because everybody, he, every time he visited Patton, he goes, I got a role for you. You know, you're, you got a job. Don't worry about it. And then he'd fly off to a, you know, different conference and leave. And Patton's inner demons would just envelop him. And I think at any time of his career, well, short of the 1930s, this is when he starts drinking way too much. Uh, I mean, we're talking borderline alcoholic. Remember, um, Everett Hughes on Eisenhower's staff dreads the idea of Patton visiting him because he's going to drain his whole liquor cabinet. You know, he's right to his <laughs> wife. I don't want George visiting because he drinks all my booze. And he really just turns dark and inward. Um, there's times he kind of spikes and's like, well, you know, I think I've, I, I've got a future. But I think that's very human. We all try our best in our jobs and we do something to screw up and the boss lets us stew for a little while and we think we're going to get fired when the boss is like, ah, I think we, I've punished him enough now. And I think that's really Eisenhower knew he was going to employ Patton in a future date. But he knew, too, to leave him alone and let him tear himself apart a little bit so he can rebuild and be a better leader. Um, and that's that's kind of how I, where I land on. I would say that in a bigger picture... It's as serious as whatever American politics are going to dictate. 
Uh, because, you know, once Drew Pearson gets a hold of this story, and that is a massive national story, and you've got people, you know, bombarding their senators and their congresspeople with uh, with letters, and, and there's angry talk on radio shows, and all of this is happening, you know, this has now become not necessarily just a military decision. Now it's a political element in, in American life. Um, you know, if this happens in a later era, I think it's pretty clear what's what's going to happen. Patton's going to go away. Um, World War II is maybe a little one-off and that the military largely get what it wants politically on a lot of levels. And Eisenhower, like you said, Kevin, I mean, he's like, I, I don't really want to let go of this guy. I'm, I'm going to need him. Plus, they're, they're old friends on, on some levels. You know, they've become frenemies in a way during the war, but... But still, they have that long bond, right? So, um, but but if this, you know, like you said, Truman is one of the people leading the charge. If this takes on enough momentum politically, then that then that the decision might be out of Eisenhower's hands on some levels. And, and so, why is that? Well, uh, the reason I've always thought this resonates this this incident is the idea of someone that senior beating on an everyday average soldier is so anathema to the American sort of democratic mindset. Uh, of sort of privileged uh, kind of aristocracy hitting the peasants or something somehow that this that shouldn't happen in in our country and our army and so Patton becomes that kind of symbol, fair or unfair. That was something the army was really pushing, especially during the Louisiana maneuvers and during yeah. training, getting overseas. Is the army is taking good care of your kids? You know, yeah, they're out of the house and everything, but we're feeding them well. And Patton would go on radio shows talking about the the, the great care they're giving the soldiers. And here this guy is beating him up now in hospital, you know, not the image the army wants. Well, it's the, the idea that the American army is democratic and that... And that you're going to go around slapping the soldiers. You're going to look after them. But like you say, Patton's been on the on the radio saying that the boys are being well looked after. This is, in a way, this is also a byproduct of his high profile, isn't it? It's the fact that... Because he, he did very much make sure people knew who he was. He did, you know, the Louisiana maneuvers he uses as an opportunity to obviously demonstrate his operational prowess but also to to get headlines and to 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 make himself known as a public figure so that surely doubles the or multiplies the impact of the slapping stories if it had been a general no one had heard of and who hadn't cut such a such a dash in the newspapers with the u.s army would have probably dealt with it quite differently i mean it may it may not have been a story anyone was interested in if it hadn't been a general whose face was on the front page of life magazine during those maneuvers and is going to be on the, the face of it again and again and again and is considered really the combat face of the u.s army then yes it might have been something that could slip away but this was such an iconic person such such a presence in the american press that it couldn't be ignored. Yeah. I mean, having said that, he wasn't going to, I mean, he wasn't due to be going to Italy anyway, was he? I mean, that was always going to be Fifth Army. So so he was going to be, he was going to be sort of twiddling his arms a little bit. I mean, I, I can see the whole point about, you know, keeping him to sweat a little bit, but, but, and, and being racked with self doubt. But, you know, Seventh Army was never, was never going into Italy. Well, the, actually, there was an alternative plan that if uh, Clark ran into a lot of trouble, Patton was going to land in northern Sicily with Seventh Army. Now, that gets nixed about two or three weeks into the campaign, but Patton continually uses it as almost sort of a fantasy to keep his mind occupied. You know, right. like we've definitely, yeah, yeah, yeah. We, we, we don't know, we might be going into Italy. Um, yep. And it's just, you can see this guy longing to have a combat command again. And it's. 
And he visits the he visits the Italian battlefield, doesn't he? Twice he goes, and one time it's it's very personally important to him. He visits um, Jeffrey Keyes, who's now the commander of Second Corps, and they're walking along a ridge. And Patton stops. He sees some artillery down in a field firing, so he stops and he lines the camera up and he takes a picture. And it's in my book, Patton's photographs. He says, you know, this photograph saved my life. Because by stopping to take the picture, an enemy artillery barrage lands about 30 yards up the road. And like a piece of fragment hits a guy in a helmet, a piece, you know, propellers towards Patton's foot. And he sees this as a sign from God that he's being preserved <laughs> for future greatness. You know, something that would have terrified any of us. He's like, oh, oh this is definitely God talking to me. I, I'm going to be doing something great in the future. <laughs> Yeah, what about that mysticism side to Patton? Yes, that's, that's a, also that's a good so intriguing all these years later, isn't it? For, for <laughs> your you podcast that, listeners, Kevin? both my hands are over my face. Um, <laughs> you know, it's, it's so different the way like they talk about any other command. Well, this guy went to Leavenworth for command and staff college and went to the Army War College and is fully trained You know, with Patton. The gods are behind him, and he can put his hand yeah. over a map and determine where the enemy is. Yeah, it's called Ultra. You know, he he uses all of the top secret tools in his chest to succeed on the battlefield. And if people want to think that it's just his brain throbbing and predicting the future, so be it. And the worst, the worst uh, mysticism to me, uh, and it's something I address real thoroughly in Volume Two, is the belief that he predicts the Battle of the Bulge. Uh, so if you guys will indulge me, I will I will go into this one. Do it. Uh, what what every historian, including myself, has relied on is a November twenty fifth, nineteen forty four line from Patton's diary, something to the effect of Troy Middleton is making a huge mistake with his Eighth Corps sitting on their butts. If the Germans were to attack right there, they would roll through. And if you look at that typed up diary, there's a little number one next to it, and you follow it to the bottom of the page for those of you not smart enough to figure it out. And it says, 21 days later, von Rundstedt would drive through this same area. Wow! Patton has predicted the Battle of Bulge. He's a genius! He never wrote that sentence. He wrote something similar to it on December 27th, the day after he relieves Bastogne. He writes... You know, Bradley shouldn't have kept that core static. You know, that was a bad idea. So his wife took that sentence on January 27th, moved it back to November 25th God. to make it look like he predicted the Battle of the Bulge. But this is so bizarre on her part. <laughs> isn't he's, it? I mean, he's, he's good enough, isn't he? Isn't he? He's good. He's plenty good without having to sort of burnish him further. It's a very strange thing to do. We need to promote him to profit, you know? He, he's no longer just a general, he's a prophet. He can predict all these great things. <laughs> but, but, but Kevin, what, what, to, to, to tell us a little bit about his wife. So Beatrice, uh, they started date. well, they knew each other from when they were in their teens. Uh, she spoke French. She was from a very rich family in Boston. Uh, they were kind of like what Americans would call the Johnson and Johnson of today. They made pharmaceutical thing, band-aids, medicines, things like that. So from a lot of money, uh, starts writing her uh, when he gets to West Point and visits her from time to time. Right before he graduates, he goes to visit her in Boston. And he's really nervous because he's decided he's going to give her his fir her first kiss or his first kiss. Um, and if she sa if she denies him the kiss... He's got a telegram in his pocket saying, you got to come back to West Point for an emergency. Pretty smart guy. Um, but 
She accepts the kiss, and like any of us, after we first kiss a girl, uh, he proposes marriage. And she accepts. And uh, But her father oh, is against it, so she goes on a hunger strike, in which her mother was sneaking her food, uh, until that father agrees. They're very close. Um, she really supports him. In fact, I think in the 1920s, they, they, she and him save a drowning person on their, from their boat. They, they pull him on the boat. She writes up a commendation for the Coast Guard to give him an award, even though she was part of it. You know, she's constantly pushing his career, helping his career. But in the 1930s, when they're stationed in Hawaii, uh, this is after World War One. Patton's gone through some soul-searching PTSD mm-hmm. himself, feels like his career's over. She starts writing a book and really making a name for herself, really drawing on all this Hawaiian lore and everything that she's learned because they had, you know, had a tour there before. And instead of supporting her, he's very negative about her career. And at this time, her niece, a young lady named Jean Gordon, comes to visit and Patton has an affair with her. Um, His wife is furious about it. Obviously, he apologizes. They make up. The relationship continues from there. She gives him three children. Uh, B, named after herself, they call her Little B. Uh, Ruth Ellen, who Patton wanted to call B2, like a racehorse. And um, George the Fourth, uh, who's going to be a West Point cadet all throughout World War II. And it's a very close relationship, very tight relationship. He writes her almost every day. But in England, right before going over to France, he bumps into Jean Gordon again and reignites the affair, which he will continue and keep hidden from his wife throughout the war. She's going to get, you know, hear elements of this from people returning, you know, either ignorantly saying, boy, Pat, your husband has all these really pretty donut dollies around him, which is what Jean Gordon was. Or it's going to be congresswomen who are visited the front and come back and say, uh, you know, that Jean Gordon girl, she's right next to your husband all the time. And Beatrice writes some angry email uh, emails, <laughs> writes some angry letters about it. <laughs> really? Ahead of her time. It's amazing. <laughs> she's that angry. No, but, you know, George dodges and ducks. Um, but it's it's really Beatrice that is it's his letters to her that we, we draw upon a great deal of to get an idea of what's going on in the front. Uh, and, you know, and, and then she continues to defend him after his death in 19, December of 1945 by enhancing these diaries, embellishing them, typing them up. Um, and I'm not exactly clear on it. It sounds like from what I've, I've tried to get the, doc, the documents from the Library of Congress, but one of the, one of the uh, staffers there did tell me that when they first submitted all the materials to the Library of Congress under the, the overseeing of, of Martin Blumenson, that the family said, nobody can look at the handwritten diaries for a few decades. Only, we only want them to use these typed up ones. And so it wasn't even an option for Blumenson when he wrote the patent papers. Right. And, you know, and it's a shame because for a long time, we've all been going down the sort of blind path uh, thinking these things about Patton. We should point out, too, Gene Gordon was not a blood relative of Patton. Yeah, niece by marriage. No, yeah. I'm, not, I'm not saying I'm just saying but, I'm at least pointing but, that but, out. But the point I'm trying to make is is that B. Patton is no shrinking violet. I mean, you know, she, she's very proud. She's very proud of her husband's career. She's a fighter herself. Um, and she wants to put him in the best possible possible light after his death yeah she goes on the radio quite often uh during the war doing war bond speeches and things like that she actually wrote a song for the second armored division as their sort of march song and it becomes the song of the entire armored forces of the u.s army so she's leaving her imprint on the army and the armored elements just as much as her husband in some ways amazing incredible 
Amazing. And how far are you with, with Volume 3, Kevin? Oh, stop pressuring me, man. Yes, I was, just what I was going to ask. <laughs> Get off my back. No, I am on Chapter 4, and I've got... So I've concluded the Battle of the Bulge, because Volume 2 ends... Uh, on December 31st, 1944. So I go a little bit beyond the relief of Bastogne, but you know, you still gotta close, uh, you, you gotta close the, the, the bulge off at Hoofalees. You gotta erase the bulge. So I've gotten all that taken care of. And now he's starting the drive. He's starting the drive for like the Hour and the Saw Rivers again and the Moselle. Uh, and that was something that always confused me because the Moselle battles are what dominates September, October, and November. Uh, of the war in 1944, and here he's got to cross the Moselle again in 45, but that's because, you know, he's got three corps lined up before the Battle of the Bulge and basically flips two of them uh, and keeps one in place. So now his army has readjusted further north, and that's where the Moselle's farther away, so he's going to have to cross the Moselle again. So I've got that. I've got the the uh, Regensburg raid. I've got the Rhine to cross. Uh, I've got Germany to get across. So I got my work cut All out All the meaty stuff. Kevin, what do you think, had he not died in, in a road accident or as a result of a road accident, when he did, had he gone on to be a Cold War figure, what would we have got from... Oh, boy. <laughs> I think Blumenson put it best that he kind of died at the right time uh, because I think he would have... He wrote about it briefly in his diaries and letters about his is worry about the black soldiers dating white women, you know? And so that was something he would have been very much against desegregating the military. Uh, his anti-Semitism comes out more and more as the war goes on. So I cringe to think what he might have, would have said about things relating to immigrants coming into our country. Um, I think he, I really do think he would have retired. Uh, his plan was to turn his house in Boston or in Massachusetts into a museum. He was going to build an extra wing onto it. And remember, he's 60 years old uh, and just gone through a major war. I, I really do think he would have retired, but I think he would have churned out a lot of very uh, reactionary kind of articles. I think he would have been pro Joe McCarthy. But not a run for, so a run for president um, against no, Truman. No. <laughs> no, I mean, just imagine. Politics aside, uh, when Patton was young, his father ran for office, I think about three times total, and lost. And Patton hated it because every time he ran for office, he would leave the house for extended periods of time. And Patton kind of resented that about his father was all that departure. And so I think the, the, the he was soured on politics from a young age, just give me military history. Um, and I think he would have probably written some other military histories himself, not just on World War II. So, so Kevin, uh, once you've, I mean, laid Patton to rest, so to speak, what, who are you going to look at next? <laughs> well, first I'm going to take a bit of a break. Uh, but the two projects <laughs> that I'm sort of gearing up on, I want to do an analysis of Omaha Beach draw by draw. Because that's really how we do it when we take, you know, because I lead tours there and everything. You start at Vereville and you work your way down. And uh, I remember talking to Joe Balkowski. I know you guys know my buddy Joe. He said, like, he goes, I've never really seen it done like that. You know, so that's kind of what I want to do. And then I've got a, a crazy idea. I always, I'm, I've always been fascinated with tanks and tank crews. And I spent a lot of my career at WW2 History Magazine interviewing individual tankers, paratroopers, infantrymen. Uh, but I could never interview a tank crew. Just, they're too old, you know, the, too many have passed away. So what I'm going to try to do, and I don't know if I'll be successful at this, 
is I want to try to find the tank crew that knocked out the most Iraqi tanks in the 91 war and interview them collectively and try to tell their tale. Because you watch documentaries, you see guys interviewing, they're like, I moved my tank over here and fired this shot. I'm like, no, you didn't. Your tank driver drove the tank, the loader put the round in, your gunner fired it. You know, I, I always feel that those guys <laughs> kind of just get run over like a steam train or ignored. And I think that story, I, I don't know that there's a story to tell there, but if there is, I want to tell it. Well, I like the sound of both of those. I particularly like the sound of the Omaha Beach one because, as we all know, you know, it's different experiences for different parts of the beach, even in the first wave. You know, it, you can you can get across with literally no casualties at all or you can be completely slaughtered. And there's no... Um, and, and it's always struck me that, that Verville and Colville were the kind of... The, the, those were the, the terrible spots in the first wave, but, but elsewhere, it, you know comparatively wasn't anything like as bad so that, that sounds a really interesting project to be honest but we should get you know we'd love you to come back on when you've when you've got the third volume out well you can invite me back anytime yeah. you want if yeah. not before absolutely great okay there's definitely <laughs> well, more to we, chat we, about in which case we have better sense than to do that i think but we would like you have you on with volume three hey out. and i i do need to mention this that i had written uh the book Patton's photographs i found the pictures Patton took back in 2006 um, but it was on a my very first tour of Europe, leading tours, that another historian said, you know, you need to write a magnum opus on Patton. And I thought that was the stupidest idea because it had already so many things been done before. But that guy, John McManus, he really encouraged me and uh, pushed me. And so I do a lot of thanks to John. Uh, for these three, for these future three volumes, I appreciate it. Remember when the royalty checks come? Remember, remember well, the that first sentiment? two are absolutely fabulous. They're they're, they're fantastic books. So um, uh, it's been great to have you on, Kevin. So thanks for thanks for joining us. Glad to be here, guys. Thanks for having me. Thanks so much. Thanks everyone for listening. We'll we'll see you again very soon. Cheerio. Cheerio. See ya. I'm Anthony Scaramucci, former White House Director of Communications and Wall Street financier. And I'm Katty Kay, U.S. Special Correspondent for BBC Studios. I've been covering American politics for almost three decades. Welcome to The Rest is Politics U.S., brought to you by Goalhanger. Go on, tell us, were those donations you made, like Obama in 2008, was that idealism? Were you hoping to get something out of these campaigns that would serve your own business interests, for example? So I think this will either make this podcast incredibly successful, Caddy, or people <laughs> will be horrified and they'll shut it off right now because I'm going to be very real with you. The Obama donation, I had gone to law school with President Obama. We were not classmates. I was a few years ahead of him. It was 2007. He was then Senator Obama. I had a check in my breast pocket. I went over to the senator. I said, Senator, I said, you and I didn't really know each other in law school, but I'm about to hand you a big check. Can I lie to my friends and tell them that you and I knew each other in law school? <laughs> well, Obama looks at me, had the best smile in American politics since Jack Kennedy. Forever. Yeah. He lights up. He looks at me and says, I'll tell you what, if you double the amount of the check, we'll take it back to Hawaii. Okay. And I looked at him. I said, you're done. I had another check in my pocket. I ripped it up. I doubled the amount of the check. And I'm going to tell you right now, I've been to more White House Christmas parties during the Obama administration than the Trump administration. 
In this pivotal year for the United States, democracy and world affairs, Britain's biggest podcast, The Rest is Politics, is launching stateside. Uncovering secrets from inside the Biden and Trump inner circles and how they shape the world's most important economy, but also the global economy too. New episodes are released every Friday morning. Just search The Rest is Politics US wherever you get your podcasts.